Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 63, Moral Dilemmas, Itching to Travel Again. All that and more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. That's freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to some people that really helped the show this past month with their support. Here we go. Benjamin Meek, Michael Scott, Juan Ortega, Emmaus Tours, Jean Francis Turcott. Thank you all very much. I'll tell you, it's so great to have people appreciate what we're doing here with the show, with both shows, and supporting. And please, don't leave it to those that are doing it. We need your support, too. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on the show like you just heard me do. And anything $10 and up gets you stickers. If you become a monthly supporter on our Patreon account, there's also benefits there. Drop by our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on Support. Now, here we go for April 2021, Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular esteemed Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom, because Sam's in the evening in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hey, everybody. That's really nice to be with you all again. So we've done a we've done a swap around here with, with the time. So so you're late right now. I am. It's um, nearly quarter past ten at night time. But um, um, you'll be happy to know that I have got a couple of scotches lined up for later on. Mm, would you pour those in advance and leave them sitting there? Is that what it is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm just sitting here um, breathing in the fumes. It's quite pleasant, really. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And and Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, of course, are in Australia, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, fresh back from an adventure. Brian and Shirley. Good morning. Hi, guys. It's bright. Well, it's not bright. It's raining here. <laughs> you can pretend. No one different. knows the difference. <laughs> but we're very grateful to Sam for staying up late so we didn't have to get up in the middle of the night. Okay, just oh, no, in No worries. I can envision Sam sitting there looking at these shots lined up on the bar. You know, like when you have a drinking competition with your friends. Listen, if, if, if I sound distracted at any stage, you'll know where my attention's gone. <laughs> Michelle Lampfair is in the U.S. I don't even know where you are, Michelle. Are you back at home? I am. I was going to say, I'm not even sure where I'm at, but I did land in South Dakota last night. So I'm back home in the uh, still great white north. It's, we've still got snow on the ground here. No. Why would you do that? It's, it's already well, April. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, no, it's actually t- uh, just about time for me to start thinking about opening my small uh, motel for the summer season. I open on May 15th. So I've got a work, a month of work ahead of me to get ready for the season. Is that normal for you to have snow right now? It is. And in fact, um, the last two summers that I've owned the place, I've had to shovel snow into early June, believe it or not. So we'll mm. see how this year goes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you must be able <laughs> have some altitude there. Yeah, I'm at 5,300 feet. So something like 1,600, 1,700 meters. Ah, wow. So if anybody's listening, interested in checking out Michelle's place, you just have to check the show notes um, for the episode. And uh, let me bring Grant Johnson. Grant Johnson in British Columbia. Grant, hello. Hello, hello, everybody. 
We are experiencing absolutely spectacularly beautiful weather. The forecast says no clouds, no rain, nothing for the next week. Mm. With a high of 19 Celsius coming up, and we're in heaven. So not yeah. complaining at all. <laughs> there's nothing like, for the, for the people who experience it, there's nothing like the spring, you know, it's the opening of the motorcycle season. So if you, you know, I know for, yes, yes, for yes. Australia, you're going into winter now or, or soon. And, but that, that springtime, that feeling when you've been, you feel kind of like you've been cooped up. And I know Brian, you're, you're kind of spoiled. You're, you're not super cooped up, cooped up. Neither are you, Grant, really, where you are. I mean, you, you can go out in the winter, but still there's something about that spring, that the spring in the air and getting out and riding. And I love seeing all the bikes, the early uh, risers. <laughs> I like to think of them, get out on the road, the first shot of sunshine you get and a bit of a dry road, people are riding. I love it. Yes. It yeah. feels so good. You just know, you, you know that you can go. There's nothing going to stop you. You don't have to put on all your rain gear and all the rest of the crap. You can just get out yeah. and ride and enjoy it. Yep. Michelle, are your roads clear? Can, can you ride? Um, we can. Yeah. In fact, most of the highways are clear and dry, but there are some of the twisty roads and some of the parks that are in the shade of pine trees. So there are still icy spots. You have to kind of choose your roads carefully. So what do you get for for summer? Like four months, less than that, three months, <laughs> three, two. It, de- it depends on the year. Yeah, no, I. It, it's funny because I've ridden in South Dakota every month of the year. It just depends on the year. Some years are different, but I've usually gone for rides into almost the end of November, and then I'll start riding again sporadically in usually March or April. Um, because we've we've already had some really warm days, lots of days for riding in this part of the world, but then we'll get another snowstorm and have to wait a week or two for that to melt off and go for another ride. Mm-hmm. Well, for today, we got a couple of things to talk about, which um, which should be good. The the second part we're going to come to, and and that's uh, where we talk about um, maybe a, a sort of a look into what's coming for us as far as travel, because I know that you know just about everybody's somewhat locked down, and and we're certainly um, held back from going country to country, depending on where you are. I know some of that might be opening up, so we can talk about that. That'll be coming up for the first part. We're going to talk a, a bit about. Women riders and and feminism on the road. I, I was looking through um, Chris Scott's famous adventure motorcycle handbook. He, it's this thing. Sam, do you know how long how long ago he published the first version of this? Ah, cheapest. It, 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 fifteen years, maybe something like that. Fifteen years. Yeah. Maybe we had more. a copy in two. Th- we had a copy in two thousand three. I reckon we had a copy. Uh, before, yeah, yeah, around the turn of the century. Yeah. yeah. This is a great book. Anyone interested in adventure motorcycling should really get this. It, it, and I'll give Chris a, a plug for this. His name's Chris Scott. The book is Adventure Motorcycling Handbook. But there's just so much information here. It's it's a good thick book. It's kind of I guess just slightly than uh, well, sort of the av- the size of the average um, reader isn't it? Like your size of books, isn't it, Sam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is pretty much. So something that you can throw into your pack and take with you, but um, plenty of information. But in any case, I, I was looking through this and I came across um, a piece that he had lowest price right about um, women motorcyclists and traveling. And she, she went on to talk about, you know, what it's like to travel as a woman by yourself. We're talking solo here. Some of the, the things that you run into and how to deal with it. And, and I think Lois has a, an amazingly positive outlook on this sort of thing. And she certainly brings it out in the story that she writes. But some of the stuff that caught me was, uh, you know, saying it's a man's world. You know, she, that was what she said. She says, you have to remember that in some countries in particular, I think she was referring to, um, was it the Middle East? I think she was referring to, but she was saying it's a man's world. You know, men do all the drinking, the smoking, and the driving, and women look after the home and, and have babies. 
And that got me to thinking about this whole dilemma because we hear about this and, and I know that you guys have been to countries like this where women are not treated equally. A matter of fact, far from it. And it got me to thinking about the choices we make. For instance, you know, people always say, vote with your dollars. So here's one of the thought processes, vote, vote with your dollars. So if you don't like I don't know, factory farming. So if you don't like factory farming, vote with your dollars, buy the non-modified food. So your, your green food, basically, or your, um, what's the word for it? Am I free range? No, organic, organic. organic. That's what I was after. Yeah. And free range eggs, those type of things. So buy that stuff, vote with your dollars, right? Now here we go and visit countries where they don't have the same thought processes that us in the Western world have. And I think all of us here talking will think uh, along the same lines that women and men are equal. To me, it's one of those obvious things and I don't know how you can't get it. So I wanted to talk about that. And, and I want to talk about, you know, how do we, how do we deal with this? And I'm looking for maybe stories from you guys, things you've experienced, good or bad, in any of these countries or any countries you've went to where you have been treated differently because um, you're a woman or you know of someone who's been treated differently and um, how we deal with it. And, and even um, should we be going to these places. So does anybody want to start off with a, a story? Has anyone had something happen where they have a story about it? Um, I'll kick it off and, and just jump in when you like. But um, on our first trip, our first indication of this was probably when we got into Turkey and uh, we went down into the farming regions. And I noticed that everyone in the fields picking tomatoes were women. And all the men were sitting on tractors smoking, watching their women folk pick tomatoes. And then when you see them driving along the street, going back to um, their farms, for villages or whatever, all the women are, are sitting in the trailer and the men are, are driving their tractors and sitting there smoking. And you pull up at the local cafe and it's surrounded by tractors with men at the front drinking coffee and smoking and the women are home cooking. You know, that, that was probably our first experience of, of um, what we thought was, oh, that's a bit weird. And in, in Turkey in those days, the restaurants were split. Yeah. So the women and children were on one level and the men were on another, on another level. And uh, uh, you got to thinking as well, it's just a different culture and, you know, you, you have a look at that sort of stuff. And then we moved into Iran, Shirley, remember? And we saw um, the, those young people in Isfahan, the young women, came up and spoke to you. They wanted to talk to me about what it was life was like in the West and one of them said that she decided she wanted to be a university professor um, so therefore she couldn't have children, have a, a marriage and children. And she was surprised that people... You know that it was quite common for women to have a career and a family uh, in Australia. Oh, she had to choose one or the other. That's yes. how she felt. Yes. That's how yeah. she felt. Yeah. And um, so you you see it in lots of places. And I think the one thing I thought about when looking at this topic, Jim, a lot of the more interesting countries we've been to are very very different to us culturally on many levels not just the equality of men and women but um, human rights animal rights um, and I remember um, one stage having a discussion about the death penalty after two Australians had been executed in Bali and um, I said well you know really I just don't want to go to places that consider the death penalty as uh, as an option. And it was pointed out to me that it doesn't leave me very many options. And a lot of the countries we've been to um, condone and embrace the death penalty. So, mm. you know, what do you do? Do you stop traveling or do you 
do you move through these countries? And you know, you, you look at India with their caste system. You see um, hardened women breaking rocks on the road to to put the, the the bedrock in the road and stuff like that. And you know, that's all they'll ever achieve yeah, they in can't life. Do it, can't do anymore. They'll never become the the leader of that gang or or get a job in a shop because of their caste. And they'll never make enough to do anything, regardless of how well, much no, they work. because of their caste, that's all they'll ever, the, they will get the lowest of the low jobs because they're in the lower caste. Yeah. It's it's a very strange I, I had a, a secretary working for me and she was Indian and the reason they emigrated to Australia is because she was from a lower caste and wanted to marry outside of that caste. And we're sitting there having uh, lunch, as you do, you know, and um, she was telling me all about it. And it, it, it's rife in those places. And you can understand why people don't want to uh, live those lives. But I don't think that should stop us from travelling. That's just my personal opinion. Um, the idea is to experience those things, but I don't but know what others think. Let me just go back to something you mentioned, Brian. You said that when you were, you were coming in, you saw the, the, the guys sitting on the tractors and the women in the field picking it. It seems so strange to me because it, it just like for a basic productivity thought process, even if you don't look at the sex involved here, you you, you would think more people working is better. Like I like I don't even I don't quite I have trouble with the mindset right from the right, right from the outset. Yeah, I agree. I agree, but that's just the way it is over there. And I remember, um, uh, well, when on our first trip we went through there and we had a, a, a girlfriend who wanted to travel through Turkey with us and she wouldn't travel alone. So I had to uh, – well, I didn't have to, but I had Shirley and Kate travelling with me. And I was a hero. They thought I was, oh, how wonderful are you, mate? You've got two of those cheap Western women. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, um, seriously, and Kate is a blonde-haired woman and she would be stared at everywhere she went. And, you know, talking about women working, Jim, I just, for International Women's Day, I went and saw a film called Women of Steel, which was about a fight in the 1970s, not that long ago, for women to get work in the steelworks in Australia and how these this band of women set up a, a, an embassy in tents outside the steelworks in Port Kembla until they were allowed to come in and apply for jobs and it ended up with an equal opportunity case in the courts and led the paved the way for um, equal rights for women in the workplace in this country. And that's the 1970s. That's not that long ago yeah. in, in a very... Um, how ridiculous is that? I mean, seriously, you know, women were making fighter planes and things like that during the Second World War for their menfolk, you know? Mm-hmm. what? Well, you know, it's just... Yeah, anyway, I'm getting on my high horse here. Sorry about that. I'm sure <laughs> Michelle has plenty to mention on this subject too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm super opinionated, so of course I do. Yeah, and super independent. So, <clears throat> I, I, I mean, I really struggle with something like that. You know, and I've traveled in some Middle, Middle Eastern countries and traveled, of course, through the Americas and Europe and different parts of Asia and Australia. So um, seeing a lot of different things, and as Brian and, and Shirley so rightly pointed out, there are a lot of issues out there, not just related to, you know, how different sexes are treated, but also different religions, um, different caste system, system members, um, lots of different ways to slice and dice how the world, you know, is, is operated and how different societies structure things. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things, as Shirley said, that, that make me uncomfortable. But I think, you know, that's part of why I travel. I really like to broaden my horizons 
and hopefully get an understanding of, you know, what that society is like and not just judge it as a Westerner from the outside without having seen it myself. So I think it's really beneficial for me, from my perspective, to travel. It's tough not to judge it through your own perspective. I mean, I think that's automatic. I I think it takes an incredible, you're fighting it all the time to do it. But so, I mean, what do you think of that when you go to a country that doesn't treat women as equals? And are you willing to go there and be treated less than what you are as a visitor? Well, (laughs) I think those are very different questions. What do I think when I go there? Um, Well, it depends. And I'll I'll kind of give you a couple of examples. But how I'm willing to be treated is another scenario entirely. I think, you know, I've, I've traveled, you know, and I can think of one instance in particular, I was traveling in Morocco and had a group of young, young boys and not super young, but I would say they were 10 to 12 years old. Um, following a friend and I as, a, as we walked out of our hotel toward a restaurant. And because, um, you know, I, I, we were two women unescorted by men. Um, so we were walking up the street alone for a few blocks and we're very visibly, I'm blonde, uh, very visibly, I think, recognizable as Western women. And there is a belief out there that Western women are easy. And um, there's there's just this misperception about that. So these young boys followed us and we're making cat calls and being very vocal and verbal, making comments and really in a way harassing us. I know, you know, in some ways, maybe it was teasing, you know, maybe it was a very minor thing, but it was uncomfortable. And I was very grateful that they were as young as they were and not grown men because it was a, it was an uncomfortable situation. But eventually it was, it was a short walk. We got into the restaurant and they cleared off. Um, And that wouldn't keep me from going to Morocco or any other country like that in the future. That's something that unfortunately can happen in any part of the world. And I think it's unfortunate that women invite attention and that men feel that they can, you know, you know, whistle or do cat calls or approach women, especially when they're alone or even as a group of women anywhere in the world that can happen in my own country. And it's, it's too bad that that is seen as acceptable or as a way of approaching women because it's, it's not. Um, so I'm, yeah, I've, I've had a couple of strange incidents um, like that, but by the same token, I've had, I remember in Central and uh, South America in particular traveling as a woman and really feeling quite the opposite that locals were looking out for me, that um, because they, if they saw me walking alone in a small village or heading towards the market, people would pull over and roll down a window in a vehicle just to make sure that I knew where I was going, asked if I needed directions, needed assistance. So, you know, there's, there's both ends of the spectrum in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's really kind of a mixed bag. And, what what if you're going to a country though where you where you actually have to maybe you have to dress differently? You um, I know Grant has has told a story before about him and Susan going in and trying to find I can't remember where this was Grant I, obviously you will know where you went into a restaurant and couldn't get served because you yeah. you were a couple and there was yeah, nobody that was Tunisia Tunisia right so I mean yeah, there were several men in the restaurant but and it was a big restaurant it was virtually empty and it was you know after lunchtime we were late but. They just completely ignored us. You know, I'd wave to a to a waiter, nothing, nothing, nothing. And eventually, a guy came up and explained very clearly to me, not to Susan, that there's no women allowed in restaurants here. But I'll tell you where you can go 
you're down the street and around the corner and up these particular stairs and there's a little sign and knock twice on the door and they'll let you both in and you can eat there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, Tunisia. that's just bizarre. Like, are you okay accepting that or do you accept it? I mean, I know you have no choice in the moment. No, in the moment you have absolutely no choice. And I think in the long term you really still have to accept it because that is the way it is. And it's going to take multiple generations to change the mindset that thinks that way. Uh, it, it's not um, it's, it's not like you can berate them and say, this is stupid, women are equal, you shouldn't be doing this. They're going to run you out of town on a rail. You know, it's just not going to work. You have to discuss in a dialogue. You can't tell them. Um, you have to get somebody who's willing to listen and interested to listen and, and really discuss what you think is the, is the way it should be or the way it is in your country, and kind of awaken their eyes to the possibility that there is another way. A lot of times, it's the only thing they know. They were raised that way. It's been like that for generations. They don't understand that it's possible that there could be a different way of dealing with people. Women are what they are, and they are told what to do and what they can do and when they can do it and how they can do it. And the men are in charge, and that's the way it is. What do you mean there's mm-hmm. another way? It's, it's just not in the vocabulary at all. So it's, it's not something that you can change overnight. And I think we have to be very, very careful and very sensitive to understanding that. You can't change it right away. Um, do you know, think so that going to these places to do, is, is part of making a change, though? Do you, do you actually think you're getting anywhere Absolutely. with it? You do? Absolutely. Yeah. If you yeah. don't well, show see. that there's another way... Yeah. That you and when you have these dialogues that you do get with people that are interested in, in, you know, who are you and why are you here? And they'll ask questions and you can get into discussions that opens their eyes to other ways of doing things. And as soon as you've got that, you have an opening, you have a wedge and that starts them thinking. It's the same thing for us when we go to these countries. You know, at first you don't really realize just how serious and how endemic and, and normal that is to them. Like Susan um, would walk out and she had to wear a scarf. And you kind of, well, do I have to wear a scarf? Well, yes, you do. Or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. There, there is not a, I can do what I want. No, you can't. And um, real problems. One story I don't think I've told before, but we were scuba diving in Sharm El Sheikh. And at the end of a dive trip, you have to have a day before you can fly. So everybody that's on the next flight out goes to this particular beach. And there's European women, American women, and Canadian women, and you know, all kinds of people from all over the place. And there's a certain group of women that will be there topless because that's what they do when they go to the beach. And there's others that are in full shadows from the local women. They're wearing these black things from their head down to their ankles, and they go in swimming. And then there's the local men, too, far too many of them, walking around and okay. staring, eyes wide open at the topless women. And what does that say to all these people, the men and the women there, about European foreign men and women? It, it's, it's a real problem. We have to be sensitive to their culture because we are saying to them, we'll run around half naked and it's okay. Not to them, it's not. So you, you can't push your own particular mores on them. 
You have to blend in. You have to discuss. You have to work with them. Um, you have to plan on changing thinking over a long period of time. Anything else is not going to work. It's just going to so, get you in trouble. And what you were saying about the scarf, Grant, I mean, I had to wear um, a scarf and a long coat when we were in Iran in the yeah. early 2000s. And trying to get your helmet on and off without losing the scarf or, <laughs> you know, if you didn't put the scarf on when you got ready in the morning, you had to find somewhere to take your helmet off and put it on so you wouldn't offend people. Um, it, it was a real pain. Yeah, but it was—it's the way they live, and you have to—you have to abide by their rules. It's. Uh, but Iran is a different kettle of fish. I mean, they—they they had a fair bit of um, uh, freedom under the the Shah, and then they had this draconian regime that's moved in. So you have people that understand what life was like in like a Westernized society, and, um, and now the the younger generations is. Uh, the, the young girls that came up and, and spoke to Shirley, they really want to know what it's like because they, they've never experienced it. But the older women have. And yeah. we were in a, um, uh, a museum, I think uh, Persepolis or something, somewhere like that, and there was a young couple and she had the scarf on and they disappeared around a corner and she's taken the scarf off and got let her hair out and they're, they're taking photos of each other. And we've wandered around the corner and she was... Um, Embarrassed a little, wasn't she? Well, she went straight yeah. for the scarf she until she saw it was us, yeah, and then right. she she just relaxed. But um, it's just a, it's it's a totally alien existence to us. Yeah, and I and I really think you know the more women that travel uh, into these areas, the more that um, it's it's a softly softly approach to changing attitudes, perhaps amongst those people. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were you know. Um, um, Burning witches at the stake, you know, when you think yes. about it. You know, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Attitudes will change. You know, when I was involved in the Women Writers World Relay event um, that ran from February of 2019 to 2020, so for a full year, I actually worked on designing the original route. So I laid out the order of countries we would be carrying the baton through. And the nature of a relay is that we were going to take this wooden baton and hand it physically from one female rider to the next female rider and carry the baton all the way around the world. Well, the challenge with that, of course, is then that I have to be able to make sure that I have representatives and people that can ride in each country so that we can actually reach from neighboring borders and then take the baton through a country to a border on the other side and pass it on to the next country. So as I was designing the route, we, you know, were planning on starting in Europe, weaving and kind of um, moving in and out of all of the countries of Western and eventually Eastern Europe, and then made our way towards Turkey. And at that point, as I'm designing the route, I'm challenged because I'm not sure where we physically hand the baton off. Can we get the baton to Iran? When it goes out of Iran, where does it go to? Are there enough women riders in each of those countries to carry the baton across their country? Are they allowed to ride? And Iran in particular was was a challenge because there is still um, a national mandate that says women are not allowed to have motorcycle driver's licenses. There are a few yeah. women who have challenged that. And so if they file a lawsuit, I, I know one in particular, there was a lawsuit um, in 2019 and a woman in, uh, in Iran 
challenge the court because the law actually was written. It doesn't specifically say that women can't have driver's licenses. So she herself, by winning that lawsuit, was issued a driver's license, but she's the only woman who was. So it didn't open that up to change <laughs> nationally for other women to get their licenses. So oh, isn't that typical of men, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we were really struggling with it. And in fact, we were rounding up women from other countries who were willing and able to go into Iran and carry the baton for us. You know, and as part of the seven-member administrative team, we had to sit down and have discussions. Is this something that we really want to challenge? It's a lot of work, not just for us as the planners, but for the women that are on the ground. And I can't imagine the challenges that they're facing. So is this something that we want to subject women to? And we really had to have a lot of dialogues about it. And we really felt strongly that if there was even a single Iranian woman who wanted to carry the baton, we wanted to support them having the opportunity to do that. So yes. we we planned to include Iran. And again, you know, really the thought process was that then by setting the example, by opening the country, not just, you know, the women writers who would participate, but the, you know, the border guards that would see us coming in, the people that would witness the baton moving through their country, so maybe some of the press or some of the media, and maybe government officials that saw that movement coming through. And again, just kind of with the idea of expanding their horizons. Um, but then we ran into the, the challenge, if you may recall, a couple of years ago, there was an issue of large CC bikes then not being allowed into Iran. So yeah. even the women that we had lined up as foreigners to go in and carry it for that country weren't allowed in. And we actually had to fly the baton then from Turkey um, on over Iran and then deliver it to Pakistan. And then we continued traveling through um, East and moving towards um, Asia through a number of countries, you know, India, um, Bangladesh, uh, Malaysia, um, a number of different countries along the way. But we did have to bypass Iran and only because of that, that, issue with uh, large CC bikes preventing us from getting in. But it, it was a conscious decision for us. We wanted to make sure we included that country in particular. How did you go with Pakistan, Michelle? Uh, Pakistan was a challenge, and that is a whole other can of worms. But the baton itself was carried in a plastic custom-made backpack. And we also had a GPS tracking unit in the backpack so that we could have like a breadcrumb trail that people, women that were following the relay could sign into a website and then follow the journey of the baton. Well, in Pakistan, they didn't like that electronic device. So they actually confiscated and retained the whole thing in, in customs in Pakistan. And eventually a writer um, who was our ambassador for Pakistan for Women Writers World Relay. She went and worked with uh, Customs and eventually got the backpack and the baton back, but we did not get the uh, tracking unit back, which was fine. So uh, at least we continued the relay and Pakistan was great. And in fact, it was it was really symbolic that the women of Pakistan carried it across their country and they went to the women of India and handed the baton over. They actually had to have an intermedi intermediary female writer carry the baton because they weren't allowed to cross into each other's countries, mm. Pakistan yeah. and yeah. India. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we had a woman walk it across the border and hand it off to India for them. That confiscation though, that, that's nothing to do with women. That's to do with satellite no. communications, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Hey, Sam. Uh, sorry, I'm just sitting here getting a sore neck because you guys are rattling away and I'm going, yep, yeah, nod, yep, yeah, nod, yeah, nod. I just thought if we don't mention Sam and bring him in here, he's going to be asleep for sure. 
Especially with that <laughs> no way. I tell you what, anybody who's listening to this is going to be going, cool, that's interesting. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, that, what a good idea. It's, it's a good show, guys. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for me, I often feel like I'm, I, I was riding back in time as I travelled. And sometimes it was literally um, with the sensation back in into the Middle Ages. And in some countries, those traditions for women are, for example, really not the same as our own. And a perfect example of that is education. There are still many countries around the world now for whom education for women is just not the norm. And should that be encouraged to change? Well, of course it should. Everybody has the right to um, an education. And I think if the people use that education, the world becomes a safer place. Um, and I think that we can do something about this as travellers because, you know, when we're there and we're talking to people, um, we're not preaching. And, and that was something that Grant touched on earlier on. And um, Preaching doesn't do anything at all. It, all. All that does is pull the drawbridge up in places because you, it's, a, it's a blatant challenge. And, well, we see nothing if the drawbridge is up. But, I mean, it's something that... Um, travellers can do, something that anybody can do, is to, to pick out and sponsor a female student from a country where they would never be able to afford or get the authority to have an education. There are all sorts of things that are around there. Um, and as far as the subject of should we be going to countries where there are potential difficulties, um, no, absolutely. We, of course we need to go to those. Um, I think one of the key points of travel is to observe with curiosity and to learn. And I mean, not, I'm not talking about going as a voyeur, um, but also to share. And I think that, you know, if we don't visit countries where there's perceived oppression, then we don't have the chance to learn for ourselves and we're purely reliant on what other people tell us. And I've made comments about mainstream media in the past. And with this, with all sorts of things, um, too many sections of mainstream media create um, the image of a huge bonfire. And yeah, of course, there is no smoke without fire. Quite often, how big the fire is is actually lost. And by travellers going to countries that appear to have problems and observing for themselves, um, then we do learn what the reality is. And if we don't visit these countries, then we allow the propagandists free reign. And I think also, if we don't visit them, then we allow potential abuse of human rights to go unobserved. Um, if abusers are allowed to abuse without the knowledge that they're being seen, then they'll carry on with what they're doing. It's, it's a bit like a husband who beats his wife or a wife who beats their husband, but behind closed doors. And because we're in a hurry through everyday life, we don't notice the bruises. But actually, if we do step inside, then we see what's happening. and We've got a chance to, to do something. I mean, directly, um, I don't see that it's the job of travellers to be in a country and to make an immediate and direct um, difference. But what Michelle's just been talking about, I'm, I'm listening to this absolutely enthralled because it is opening so many eyes. Um, and I followed the relay with absolute fascination watching what was happening along the way. And while it was going on, I was thinking about what it was like traveling with Burgett's because, you know, I spent the four, first four years of the eight-year trip on my own. Um, but then suddenly traveling with Burgett's, and one of the fantastic things about that was suddenly places that were not traditionally open to me to go to were open to her and were open to us as a couple because we were male and female and not solo male. And she had comments, um, horrified comments, about her having to go out to work. 
what you mean you <laughs> have to go out to work yeah mm-hmm. and to, that was just such an alien thing in that culture and they, they they just thought well this is completely weird but there were other places where they were just so impressed that here she was as a woman riding a motorcycle and you could see plant, um, seeds of thought being planted and that is one of the beauties of travel isn't it and we know I mentioned earlier on about feeling like I was you know, going back into the Middle Ages. In many countries that I've traveled to in the developing world, it's often the man who appears to be the leader. But in truth, that is a historical throwback in some ways, um, because, of course, behind every man is a good woman. That's that's true, isn't it? Um, no, behind every successful man, there's an absolutely shocked woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's sure. <laughs> listen, I've been to places where um, the man is actually lost as far as his position is concerned. Once upon a time, his role was that of the hunter and protector. And it was logical, therefore, in those days that the woman ran the family and the home because she was the person who gave the birth to the child. She was the one who suckled and et cetera, et cetera. But now, of course, there are so few animals to hunt and most of the protection that's needed is against burglars, unscrupulous politicians and hunger. But the fact is, so often in my experience, the woman is actually the powerhouse. It's just that she's quietly getting on with it behind the scenes. Yeah. A bit like a good book editor. Well, I think yeah. That's, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that's an ideal scenario, yeah. isn't it, that, that you're talking about? That, that's not the case everywhere. Like, uh, for instance, I'm looking at some uh, top 10 lists of worst top 10. One is violence against women attitudes. And this is, um, this is through, uh, economic, co- uh, sorry, economic cooperation and development, international development statistics in 2018. I'm not quite sure what that relates to, but it's from another survey, uh, that was published. But what it says here is the percentage of women who agreed that a husband slash partner is justified in beating their wife slash partner under certain circumstances. And then their top 10 list, Thailand's right at the top. Then there's China, Cambodia, then India's number four, Malaysia, Singapore, Egypt, Vietnam, South Africa, and Morocco. That's the women that have been surveyed. The women agreed. So that's not something that you're you're going to open people's eyes to necessarily by going in and showing something. And just let me finish off with this by saying that in my mind, I'm thinking like the, the connectivity of the world is such today that I don't think it's any real shocker that the, to most people that there's other ways to live, There's a, that, that women have different rights in other countries. Or let me just play devil's advocate for this because what, this, what I'm looking to do is sort of rattle the, the bee's nest I'm not sure that going and patronizing that country is a way to to passively open their eyes to something. Another way that might be considered more effective would be to cut them off from tourism. I know this is extreme, but cut them off from your tourism dollars to say, hey, I'm not coming to your country because the way you treat your women. You know, like I, not- I just have to go to the, the Shirley, just before you, you say something, I, I'm just going to refer to one of the stories you told about I think there was there was a dog or something that was being beat. I can't remember what animal yeah. it was. There was a dog being yeah. beaten. I think is what it was. It was a donkey. Yeah, a donkey. Okay, and you lost it on them. I mean, I mean, you you yeah. couldn't stand and watch this animal be beaten right. to death. You know, so so that's- I, and I I intervened, and um, some members of the raw panel said that I shouldn't have. And I, I probably didn't make any difference, but I certainly felt a lot better at the end of it because I'd I'd had my say. And um, just going back to what you were saying about about women, Jim, it's not just in third world countries. Um, here in Australia, 
with the women's active activism over violence against women are always saying that women will say to them, oh, look, I aggravated him. I made yeah. him angry. Mm. I shouldn't have done this. Well, sorry, that's not the way it is. But Australia is certainly not a third world country and we have, we've even got an advertising campaign on at the moment on television telling people, not just men but women, not to be mute, as they put it, where, you know, they're at the football and a man hears his, his, the guy standing next to him yell out, you're playing like a girl to his son, um, a, a father watching his son throw balls at his, his, his daughter and not saying, don't do that, you shouldn't do that. So, you know, 2021 Australia and we're still teaching people how to treat other people. Shirley, I, I, I'm absolutely getting what you're saying here. I haven't been to one single country in the world where, to my outsider's eyes, these sorts of things aren't happening to some extent. And I remember my first trip to Australia, things we were talking about, Australia just now, um, where the bar, the pubs were split in two. You had a, yeah. um, a male yeah. saloon and you had a ladies' bar. And, the ladies' wrote, lounge. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the ladies' lounge. Well, you could go and have a shandy. <laughs> And and if a woman walked into the male side, wow! Um, oh, they were arrested. There was a, 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 a documentary on television the other night called Brazen Hussies, and it was about the women's rights movement. And uh, women were arrested um, one, by one, trying to go and she get chained herself to the chained herself to the bar rail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> in a public bar, and the police came with bolt cutters and took her away in the back of a, a divisional van because she had the audacity to ask to be served a beer in a in the public bar. Well, that's that's what about the sixties. 1960s, 50s? 70s. 70s. Australia is not that, uh, not that progressive, yeah. really. Yeah. The last time I came across this in Australia was in 1993. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, wow. 1993. And it was still like but that in 1993. Oh, but I mean, there are still, still states in the USA. That, yeah. Oh, Sorry, no, I was just going to say there's still pubs in the outback Australia where um, if a woman walks into the main bar, everyone stops. It's like that scene from Star Wars when they arrive in the aliens bar. <laughs> All conversation stops and everyone looks at you like, what are you doing? Who are you? I can't believe yeah. Star Wars was just brought up in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry, Jim, but it's, it's my yep. favourite analogy yeah, for walking into a bar. But it, it's, it's not just... Countries, I remember we were in the Hunza Valley in Pakistan and we stayed in this beautiful little village and uh, we were invited by this gentleman to go to his local school and and um, see the education that they were providing to their folk. And the women were wearing bright, beautiful, little girls wearing beautiful uh, saris, brightly coloured and all the rest of it. They were Ismaili Muslims and they believed in teaching their women. And on the other side of the valley was, I'm just trying to think what sort of Muslim they were, but they were very devout and very dour and you don't, you do not educate women. But this, this man said to us, I want my, my, my daughter to be a doctor and um, uh, the Aga Khan, who's the leader of the Ismaili faith, teaches you that if you don't have enough money to educate all your children, educate the girls because the girls will then go ahead and educate their family. So, you know, it's different attitudes between different people. And and we left that village. Um, we spoke to this man. He's a lovely, lovely man and his, his lovely family. And I think it was only about a week or so later, um, 
the Taliban had come in, well, the, the other sect on the other side of the, um, the valley had came in and burnt that school down because that school taught the, the, the young girls. That was their reasoning. So, you know, the, they have uh, uh, these internal struggles themselves. So I, I, I encourage um, women to travel, to uh, go and and experience these things, but also show people like this brave man and his brave family that they're not alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well right. said. Yeah, well said. Well, let me... Was, go ahead. Um, there was um, some guys who uh, used to buy um, Honda C90s in the UK, and they would do them up and they would ride them down to um, West Africa where they would um, give them away to um, a local hospital. And most of the guys who were doing this would use their holiday time and um, grab a, a few extra weeks um, from their bosses who were in favour of it. And many of them were electricians and plumbers and people like this. And basically they were rebuilding the hospital. Um, and the, the, the Honda C90s were going to doctors and nurses so that they could get to work and get in and about amongst the villages and so on. And I just thought this is absolutely fantastic. But once the doctors and nurses all had um, their bikes, then the guys started looking around for other things that they could get involved with. And they realised that actually Actually, um, a lot of the kids were perhaps walking for two or three hours each way to get to school and so on. And um, some of the the, pu the pupils that they chose to get, give the bikes to um, were girls. And they were for exactly the reason that Brian said just now. And that was that the girls would go to school and they would be going home on these bikes with the time then to teach all of their siblings. Um, it was worked out that actually most of the boys wouldn't do that. They'd be off to play soccer and stuff like that, but the girls yeah. would be teaching the other kids. Nice. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? What people can actually do. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you don't make any difference by going to another country. But I mean, Saudi Arabia is a country that we hear an awful lot about in a very negative way to, to the way that women are treated there. But it's changing. Um, and I think it is part in part changing because um, travellers go there now. I mean, yeah, is it far tra changing fast enough? No, of course it's not. Well, not to my eyes, it's not. But it is changing. And it's, it is a slow process. And um, we were talking earlier on about um, how people in um, developing world countries uh, perceive Western women and Hollywood has an awful lot to do with the negativity, um, the negative behaviour towards Western women. Um, the, the internet and so on shows an awful lot of really, really outrageous, culturally outrageous movies. And so, yeah, um, somebody's making money out of that somewhere and other people are paying the price for it. You know, you mentioned mainstream media there. You mentioned Hollywood as well. This is one thing I often hear when people are talking about this sort of things as sort of a blame. Nowadays, though, we have social media and social media spreads far more information and disinformation um, than anything else. And so in other words, um, you, you know, it doesn't have to be from a Hollywood movie. It doesn't have to be from it. And it's not just the Hollywood movies. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things going on on the Internet that exploit things. And we're seeing that, you know, like it, so you, we, we can't very well just say, well, it's just mainstream media, at least in my mind, or, or it's Hollywood or whatever. They may be the big ones that you can point out for a single um, uh, view, but you just look on the internet, even in our industry and see how many people exploit things. I, I don't know if I want to go too far down this thing, but I mean, you, you'll see people use certain things like women 
to uh, to promote things. Like like one thing that drives right. me nuts, and I don't understand it still, is that a lot of the races that you see still have women dressed up in skimpy outfits at the finish line. And I'm thinking, like, shouldn't this be like long gone by now? Yep. They yeah, banned it, it here at the Formula One and all hell broke loose what, because what they got rid of what they call the pit girls. Oh, well, it, why do you go to the races? Because you want to see a woman standing in high heels and a bikini under an umbrella, either in minus three or 48 degrees, standing next to a man who's about to drive a car. You mean people Seriously? are actually arguing that, that that's what they want to see? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the races, a lot of the race fans thought, well, that's part of the experience and we want to experience that. Oh, for goodness sake. At least GP has stopped that entirely. There's no more yeah, yeah. umbrella well, girls. I've got to say that one of my mates is posting stuff. Of the old days, you know, posters selling bikes and all that sort of stuff, and he posted up a, a beautiful old green frame Ducati with uh, some model draped over the top of it. And a couple of my mates said, Get that woman off that bike. I want to see the bike. You know, not the woman. <laughs> I saw yeah. that, right? <laughs> You know, there's there's a, a well-known drink company that that has all kinds of that. I know one video I saw where the women are riding dirt bikes, and they look to be like really high-skilled riders. They're, wear, they're riding dirt bikes in basically bikinis and stuff, and they're riding with guys. Yeah. The guys are fully geared up. So to me, that says that says so many things that are wrong there. That like, uh -huh. what safety isn't yeah. important for the women. I mean, there's just so many issues with that. That's mainstream still. You'll never you know, find me liking a post that does something like that. You know, and there's a lot of years behind that. I, I recognize that a lot of that comes from marketing. And that was, yeah. you know, aimed and targeted towards their customer base. So whether it was a beer company or a motorcycle company or, you know, race promoter, if the men were the fans and men were the target customer, they used women to market to get those men to buy whatever that product was. And that's just a way of thinking that's really, you know, permeated our culture in so many ways and so many cultures, specifically for, you know, selling products. It's a discussion that I see in a lot of women's forums. Um, you can imagine it's a lot of, uh, uh, fodder for discussion when we see a lot of ads with women is in that, bikinis. Is is that changing now, Michelle? Do you think that's changing now? It, I do. I, I I think that there definitely are companies that are more conscious of it. Um, but it's not maybe it's not as progressed as it should be with other companies. And and I can't honestly even think of examples or, you know, and I don't know that I really care to. I think it really just is something that I I ask that manufacturers and promoters and people, you know, who run businesses and make those decisions start thinking about that because there are women out there buying products that are making choices based partly on how you promote your company. And uh, we're, we're looking at, at gear, we're looking at safety, we want to be treated as equals. And we don't want to be, you know, looking at marketing and, and campaigns that show a bunch of women in bikinis. And that's yeah. that's a real discussion point for people out and, there. And, and uh, I'll, I'll just another little example. We had a, 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 a got a friend, a, a couple of friends, and they both ride. And um, they went into a bike shop to buy a motorcycle for her. And of course, the salesman talks to him. Mm -hmm. And she, she got really pissed off with that. And I don't blame her. No, uh, neither. Yeah, and, and, and all those attitudes have to change. And right, that used to happen to, to me. And, sorry, I'm talking yeah, go, about you. That no, used go, to happen go. to me and Berger all of the time, particularly in Latin American um, countries. 
um, you know, Birgit would ask a question. We had been a, a motorcycle dealership looking for spare parts or something, and Birgit would ask the question, and it would always be me that got the answer. Um, yeah. I can give you a corollary to that, though. <laughs> Just for fun. Pardon? I can give you a corollary to that. For us at South American Borders, when we were at the border, the, cust- the border guard would ask me the question. But my Spanish was terrible. And soon as Susan's fluent, so she'd answer. He'd ask me a question again, and she'd answer. He asked me a question, she'd answer. Yep. And the border guard eventually said, doesn't he talk? <laughs> yeah, she said, only when I let him. <laughs> it just gets we, us in we trouble. We the same sort of thing, I was going to say, um, Sam, from what I can see, Birgit is probably a better mechanic than what you are. <laughs> oh, without doubt. <laughs> well, and, and that shouldn't be a surprise because it's just who spends the most time doing it, right? I mean, it, it's funny, our, our traditional thoughts, but Sorry. but it isn't just industry and it isn't just mainstream media as well. If you, for instance, you know, I've, I've searched on YouTube for things like um, tiny house building or living in a cabin, and I am... I'm shocked by how I mean, I'm literally shocked by how many people are putting up wilderness living videos uh, and they're women in bikinis and they're doing stuff outside <laughs> in bikinis, which like there's so many issues. Like, first of all, it's just stupid. It's dangerous. You, you nobody would ever dress like that. There's one of a girl pulling out uh, bushes or something and it's there's snow on the ground and she's literally in like uh, some skin tight pants and, and, a, and a tiny little top. It's strictly done to attract attention. So this is a big problem with just the average person on the internet. There's a lot of people who are, are, are doing this to exploit it. That doesn't help things at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that totally counters and any sort of progress we've made in the other direction. Yeah. And I can't believe that they're still doing that now in this day and age. More than ever. More than ever. The old saying used to be, isn't it? Sex sells. Well, how long is it going to take us to go from the middle ages of that saying into the, into the reality? And what's just, what's to say a man in tight jeans and a, a singlet top pulling bushes out isn't going to sell more tiny homes than a woman in a bikini. Seriously. Michelle? I, I'd buy that. No, I'm <laughs> Now you're being sexist. Just stop it, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, One yeah, of the yeah. things it, I saw it, this week made me laugh. It does Sorry, work both ways. That's right. And, and if it doesn't, it's equal. I, I mean, I, I guess there's really no harm as long as it's understood that, that that's the case. But but so let, let me put this out there as, as another devil's advocate thing. Let's say you're going to take a vacation. You're going to go to a farm. You're going to stay there in one of their small cabins. Beautiful little farm. You're going to spend a week there just hanging out. And they got a bunch of things going on. But this particular farm beats and kills their animals just at, at, at random. They sometimes get aggravated. There's some hot-headed people who work there. And, um, you know, they'll they'll you know, lose it with a dog or something and beat it to death right in front of you. Is it a place that you are going to go? Or are you going to stop and say, I'm not going there because of the way they... I'm not going there. And I would also there. put them into the local animal welfare authorities. Yeah, they'd be copping it for Absolutely. me. And in this day and age, people would put that on the internet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But isn't this the same thing as going to a country where they don't treat women equally? In, in particular, when they're, when they're, they're heavily uh, skewed uh, in that direction? But you're talking about violence, Jim. I mean, I think if you were in any country in the world and you saw a man beat his wife you would do something about it. You would ring the police. You would find authorities that can help that woman. And, you know, you're talking about people mistreating their animals who have no voice. So, yes, you would do it. But, but some countries, to, the, they do do this. They, they will beat the women and they will get away with it. But if you saw it, if you witnessed it, mm. you would have to do something about it if you were a decent human being. 
I think maybe what, what, I'm, what I'm lost, sorry, Shirley, I think what's lost here is, is what I'm trying to say is that the, the way that you're going to stop that farm from treating the animals that way, and maybe it's a bad example, I don't know, but is to not go there, hold your money back. And I'm just wondering if that's not something to consider to, uh, for a country that doesn't treat their women equally. So Jim, this, this poses a, a, an interesting question, not so much about women, but um, when Burma first opened up before mm, it became yeah. Myanmar, People were saying we really should visit Burma now um, because we will help the people, the Burmese people, by going there and spending our money. And there was another school of thought which was don't visit because all the businesses are owned by the military military dictators. Uh, So the money isn't actually going to help the people. It's going to help the dictatorship. So Mm -hmm. that is a moral dilemma on a human scale. So what do you do? Do you visit the country and support the dictators or do you like a, a, a personal equivalent to countries issuing um, sanctions on other nations? What do you do? Yeah. Surely for me it was really interesting that you just um, you brought that up because I, I made a note about Myanmar. It, it is a perfect example. Should we boycott Myanmar now? Um, because it's just been, you know, had another coup and so on. Um, it's the same dictators are running it now as that were yep. running it when it was first opened up to the general public. Exactly. I've got friends who've travelled in, I still can't think of it as Myanmar, I still want to call it Burma. Burma, um, <laughs> they, They've been and they went there um, very conscious of this point and they were very conscious that the hotels they were staying in, the mainstream restaurants, they were all owned by the government. But they spent their time as much as they possibly could with um, the ordinary people and talking to them, eating in the little restaurants where they could get away with it because there were some times that there were people watching them and they just weren't in a position that they could do so. But they spent as much time as they could. And their attitude was, um, we're going to come away and we're going to talk about how it is there. And by being there and spending time with the local people, we're going to let them know that they're not forgotten by the outside world. They're not going to be beaten up behind the closed door. It's an interesting um, position to be in, particularly for people like us who travel across across countries rather than flying into and, and out of them. Yeah. So you can sometimes pass through a country that you would normally, um, that a lot of visitors over. would not encounter. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's it's a it's I understand where you're coming from, Jim, playing devil's advocate with these things, but I think it's on such a big scale that uh, we do have to try and change things. Like another example is um, honour killings. Um, we were in Pakistan and India. You'll you'll read the paper and there'll be a gas explosion in a in a kitchen where uh, a woman or two women were killed. That's an honour killing. And the, and the authorities started to recognise that and they are starting to prosecute in relation to that, uh, those honour killings. So to me, that's a start. I mean, it's a, it's a long way off having equality for everybody, but um, in their societies, at least it's a start. And you know, even in our own country, we, we are doing things. Not, not me as a police officer, how many domestic uh, violence um, things did I go to, hundreds, thousands of them. And it, it, it's not just in other societies. But here now, what happens is 
a police will, will get called to a domestic dispute and uh, the first thing they'll do is take the um, aggressor away and nine times out of ten it's a man, not all the time, but nine times out of ten, and they are put into a hotel. The government is now providing money for that to be done. So you take the violence away straight away. So the women and the children so, are not having to leave their home. Which has happened in the past. But the violence mm-hmm. is being taken out of their home. In these, uh, in my the- day, I used to bloody lock them up, and as soon as I could, just put them in the jail and let them cool off for a while. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> maybe to um to wrap this up and and uh, maybe put out some information that, that might be handy for somebody traveling for women traveling alone or or with a partner. Do you guys have tips that you would give uh, ideas, concepts, things that might um, help somebody navigate some of these countries? Yeah, I, I certainly have a couple. And I was going to say, um, you mentioned at the top of, of the show, um, Chris Scott's fantastic book. I actually went and pulled mine off of the shelf when you mentioned it. And mine um, had actually an, an article, of course, from Lois Price in there um, that you specifically mentioned. She had some good tips from her time traveling in the Americas. I think that must have been the era when she wrote that piece. And then there was also a story in there by Nikki McCormick, who traveled to Asia in the mid to late 90s. Um, And she offered some tips as well. One of the things that they mentioned was actually wearing potentially a wedding ring. And um, a lot of women have said, I've spoken to many travelers in the past, and, and it's a situation that I've found myself in and have used from time to time. If I'm alone someplace and I feel like I'm drawing some attention um, saying that I'm waiting for my spouse, that maybe he's just just up ahead or he's in the next town or he's at the hotel or what have you, just to, to make someone think that I'm not necessarily traveling alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, our story on that that I would like to add here is very good, I think, indicative of how good people are as opposed to bad. Um, we were in the very southern part of Tunisia where tourists never go, uh, and I got sick, which is a recurring theme. Uh, I was sick as a dog, and Susan had to go out and get food. The restaurant, the hotel we were in had no restaurant, no facilities, nothing. I mean, it was a bunch of concrete block boxes, and that was it. Uh, so she would have had to go out. She had no dress, no nothing, you know, just uh, her jeans and a shirt. And uh, she got a scarf, of course, because you really have to wear a scarf there. And she went to a shop to buy something to eat, and they wouldn't serve her. She's she's alone. What's going on here? You know. And finally, she explained to them with hand signs and language, pointed to her wedding ring, and explained that her husband was sick, and she had to get food, and she's looking after him, and she needed help. Well, the first guy that she went to finally figured this out, and then he couldn't have been more helpful. It was amazing. She said it everywhere she went, sorry, to, to paraphrase that or rephrase that, this man took her to every other shop in town that she needed to go to. I mean, this is a place where there's no supermarkets. There's the cheese shop, there's the meat shop, there's the vegetable shop, and there's the dairy shop, et cetera. And he took her around to the different shops and they passed her around and explained what was going on. And Susan said they were absolutely wonderful, couldn't have been more helpful. And every day she came around, they greeted her with a smile and got her what she wanted, no problems at all. But she had to get over that initial, you know, what is this strange woman doing here? 
um, and where's your husband kind of thing, or where's your other women? Because in this town, we would see in the morning, all the women would go out in a group. There'd be six or eight or even 10 of them, and they'd go from shop to shop as a group. And by 10 o'clock or so, they were all gone and back in their rooms, uh, in their houses. You didn't see them in the afternoon. Of course, Susan's going out 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or whenever seemed sensible. Um, so it was, it was a very different experience. So people can be super helpful at the same time as, what is this? I take Michelle's point about um, the wedding ring, and, and um, I suppose that goes with that story. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Without the wedding ring, she would have had a problem. That was very yeah. important. I think it's a lot easier to um, to travel through countries that are potentially difficult for these sorts of things when you pay attention to what the custom, the local customs are. Um, we can't change customs overnight, but we can learn from them and then we can share the information when we leave, we can pass it on. And it can be writing books, social media, magazine articles, or just by having better informed conversations. And I thought long and hard about how to, to phrase that. But yeah, better informed conversations. Um, sometimes it's quite hard to do, isn't it? Especially when we come back home and we're talking to um, to people who, you know, have never even come close to it. We've got to really work hard to choose our words to get across the things that we've been seeing and forming opinions about. And I think everyone, not just women, but when you're travelling to new places and um, places perhaps off the beaten track, um, places very different to our own culture, be aware of your surroundings and be aware of what people are doing around you. Don't just blithely walk around as if you own the shop, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. One yeah. of the things that we learned uh, when we first started traveling in Central America in the 80s, uh, we were driving along and we would sort of figure, you know, what's going on here? And we're trying to figure it all everything out. And we eventually realized all the men, whether they're working in a field or doing dirty work or behind a counter, they all wore long pants and long shirts. It's a million degrees out, super hot, and I just want T-shirt and shorts. Nobody, no man was wearing T-shirt and shorts. So I wore you know, long pants and long sleeve shirt. And Susan Brian was doing the same with Turkey. the men. Yeah, yeah. You, you. Uh, I, I, I felt like I was being a, doing a match it. Yeah, I, I felt like I was being abused walking around. I said, "Just feel self-conscious about this because I had a bald head. No man in in uh, in Iran has a bald head. Iranian men don't go bald. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you got to grow some hair there, Brian. <laughs> I'm trying, mate. I'm trying. No, I'm not. Okay, I'll give it up. You go to some countries and men walking around in shorts, um, the locals look at them as if they're walking around in their underwear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got to go along with local customs and dress appropriately for local customs. There's no point in setting yourself out as being different, strange, weird, running around half naked, whatever. You're just setting yourself up for trouble. Go along but with the local actually, culture. That's you so were true. talking about the beaches um, before, Grant. You can mm-hmm. walk to the beach in a pair of cotton trousers and a long sleeve cotton shirt or a T-shirt and get to the beach and have your bathers on and enjoy a swim. You don't have sure. to walk through town in your bathers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree. Just really respecting local customs and not just, you know, dress dressing similarly or paying attention to customs like in Islamic countries. Um, I certainly cover my head, um, depending on how in-depth 
um, you know, their customs require women to be concealed. I respect local customs because I don't think that having confrontation or disrespecting their culture in any way is going to open the doors for a healthy dialogue. And as a traveler, I always try to be respectful wherever I am, even if it's not necessarily something I agree with. If it's a custom that is, you know, part of their culture, I feel like I have to at least respect that and follow their customs as much as I you know, consciously can in order to even get to a common ground to have a healthy dialogue about how we, you know, advance them or how I understand their perspective. So I feel like at a minimum, I really have to be respectful of, of everything, dress, etiquette, um, you know, how I eat, how I interact, everything. Nicely said, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. I was going to say mutual respect is what you're aiming for. That's and you're right. not going to get respect for yourself and your points of view if you don't respect theirs. That's right. I think I think of yeah. somebody coming into um, a Western store or whatever, you know, there's lots of places where you see no shirt, no shoes, no service. You know, you've got to respect right. the local customs. You know, we expect that here. I mean, you see a guy walking down the street in just a pair of super tight, small shorts, no shirt, no shoes, nothing. You kind of go, hmm, what's going on here? Yeah, that's, that's not really acceptable here either. So go along with theirs too. That's true. And it, yeah. it, I mean, that's difficult though, isn't it? Because, you know, we're talking about that yet. Um, I've got uh, a neighbor um, not so far away from me and um, they're um, from the Middle East and she wears full robes. Um, Fine. She's allowed to. But that's not her observing what local cu- culture here is. Oh, boy, yeah, Sam, that there's a... Boy, <laughs> you're setting yourself up for a problem there, uh, Sam. Yeah, but I mean, but it's, it is... religion, it's, potentially. The, it is religion, and the point is... You don't is, find it offensive. No, exactly, right. we don't, because that's... Yeah, anyway, um, the point is that they are very respectful. And it comes across with everything they do. Just because they dress differently, he dresses differently too, by the way, um, doesn't mean that they're wrong. Um, But they're respecting just about everything else that they possibly can because those things to them are particularly powerful. How can it be powerful to us to walk through an Egyptian market wearing swimming trunks and a bikini? Yeah. You know, how can right. that be important not to us? Work. This is not a point <laughs> right. that I, I thought we would, we would, I'd never even thought of it before, but uh, um, to come up with this conversation. But what you're saying is someone coming to Western world, not sort of blending, they're, they're sort of bringing their culture with them. The only thing that popped into my mind when you said that was that I, I kind of like the idea, at least maybe it's arrogance on, on my part, but in, in my head that, that the Western world is sort of at least um, evolved enough that we can understand that. We can look at it and say, okay, they're wearing those clothes because that's what they're comfortable in. Because I know I've heard uh, women say before, the idea of them taking off their clothing that they have to cover their bodies is like us walking around naked. They, they feel totally exposed. So I'm hoping that, you know, like for, for us, for us Western world people, we can look at that and say, I get it. You know, I understand why they're doing it and, and that's okay. You know, you don't want to, um, you know what I'm trying to say here, you know, r- rather than, than looking <laughs> at it as an offensive thing I, that somebody's doing because they're not observing our culture and, and wearing their, their, uh, I don't know, shorts and t-shirt. I think there's a difference in tolerance level is where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, we're more used to multicultural in Canada, particularly, is, is theoretically extremely multicultural, and you see every form of dress there is, to a point, of course, you don't run around naked. Um, but it's 
we allow more range of expression and more range of dress. And I think that's a good thing. Um, some countries are monocultural, one way of doing things, and this is the only way. And that's where we need to try and expose those monocultures to other cultures and other ways of doing things, which is what we have, as travelers can do simply by example. I hope it makes the world a better place. Well said, Grant. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an excellent line to to wrap that up on. We're going to move on after we take this short break to thank Fresh Tracks, and then we're going to go into part two. Fresh Tracks has been around since the '90s. They uh, work with companies to uh, inspire, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills. It's a it's it's team building that sort of thought process. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, uh, Yahoo, Comic Relief, Mars. I don't know. Do you do you guys know what Mars is? Do I know what Mars is? I think I know what Mars is. Do you guys know what Mars is? Mars bars? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Mars chocolate. Mars yeah. leathers? Mars leathers, Mars bars, Mars the planet. <laughs> well, I don't think they're working with Mars. I mean, I it's, it's a- the same time that made Mars bars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of Mars. I've always seen this on my list here and, and I'm thinking Mars. That, I always think it's Mars bars. Of course it is. But I, I, that's a UK company, isn't it, Sam? Do you know Mars? Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking naked chocolate right now. <laughs> yeah, we used to live down the street from the Mars factory. Every once in a while, the wind oh, would walk same, away. Same thing wow. the whiskey. Same <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Brian, I had two sips. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> we can smell it. <laughs> the website is freshtracks.co.uk. And um, of course, if, if you're contacting them to, to talk about something to do with your company, make sure you throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. And uh, we certainly are, are happy to have Fresh Tracks as our sponsor for Raw. So um, this next part, I mean, you know, we've all been dealing with COVID. This is one of those those things. It's, it's pretty amazing how, how this has happened. Not amazing, but I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to look at. I'm sure it's going to be analyzed to death after we get out of this. And I, I'm convinced we, we will get out of this COVID situation. But it's interesting that the whole world, like, like nobody's escaped this, you know, we've all had to deal with it. We all have our own stories. We all have our own complaints and things that we're whining about and, and things that haven't, haven't went well or fi- we're finding difficult. But um, when it comes to travel, it's, it's a big thing. It's surprising how many people are really hurting, really feeling that need to get out and travel and really missing travel that's been taken away from us, either you know on a big scale or a small scale, like just with vacations and things like that. We got a, uh, an email here from a fellow named John Clare. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase some of this for you, but I'm going to tell, tell you r- roughly what he's asked. And I know you guys have all seen this. He's got a question for the overland travel experts with COVID-19 being so prolific, closing borders, et cetera, et cetera. What he's asking is, and his words are, to dust off those crystal balls and give us your opinions of what we can anticipate in future weeks, months, or years concerning overland travel. Now, I know everybody sort of has their finger on the pulse to some degree, probably in slightly different areas. And I think everyone will, will have an idea, or at least a, like a, a guesstimate from the way things have been going. Obviously, no one's going to know for sure. John says that um, he'd planned to ride to, and his son, by the way, he's, he was going to ride with his son to the top of Alaska and then back down to the bottom of South America. And they've been planning this trip for four years. Uh, his son finally retired and they were, they were going to head out uh, the first of July. <laughs> it was funny to see this. He says this is entirely Sam's fault. When he says Sam, he means you, Sam. <laughs> He does. <laughs> he does. 
So you, you did, what, can you fill this in? What, did you convince somebody to get a bike or something? I was doing a presentation in the States and two guys rocked up and they traveled quite a long way to get there. And uh, we ended up having a conversation and they were talking about getting a motorcycle and sidecar to do a big trip. And I just looked at this guy and I thought, you've got all your marbles, you're fit. Um, I'm not quite sure why you don't think learning to ride a motorcycle is something that you can do. So I was a bit enthusiastic. And um, sometime later, I was absolutely delighted to hear that uh, John had decided to to learn to ride a um, motorcycle for himself and had passed his test. And John and Brad, mates, it's absolutely fantastic to hear from you guys. A fair bit of water's um, flown underneath the bridge since um, we linked up, but I'm absolutely delighted that you're still planning to go for it. I think it's brilliant. Good on you. So those two people that came up were John Clare and his son, Brad Clare. And it's Brad that had the motorcycle license. He was the one looking to get the sidecar and John was going to ride in it. Yep. And also, I guess uh, for you, Sam, for, for getting him to do something that he never thought he'd do at 67 years old, he says. So um, it's, I love hearing those things that, that people do and, and um, as they get older. So how about it? What do you think? Where is this thing going to go? Maybe we should start with Grant because Grant, you are Horizons Unlimited. What, what do you think is going to happen here? What, what's your opinion? I think it's going to happen slowly. Um, I think a lot of there will be a lot of countries individually that will open up internally. Um, I'm hopeful that Canada will open up this summer and we can go riding. Um, but international travel. I think we're a long ways away from it. There's far too many countries that aren't even remotely close to being vaccinated in any significant numbers. Nobody's interested in opening up borders to other countries. Um, if you're flying into a country, you've got at least two weeks vaccinations. If they all are, sorry, two weeks. Uh, what's the word? I've lost it. Quarantine. Quarantine. Thank you. I'm trying <laughs> to avoid that words. word. I don't, I, I, I don't want to know that word. I just don't want to think about it. Isolation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a bad word too. Um, I'm trying to think positive thoughts here. And quarantine and isolation are negative thoughts. <laughs> However, I think we're going to be stuck with them for a long time. Um, I wish it weren't so. Um, I would like to be able to say, yes, I think this year we'll be able to start doing a little bit of travel. And next year it's going to be wide open and we're going to go everywhere. I think that's daydreaming. It's just not going to happen. So I think we need to focus on what we can do ourselves in our own countries. Travel, we call it micro-adventures. Um, I don't care if it's just going away for the weekend and testing out your camping gear, but you're getting prepared for travel. Uh, and I, I think that's what we have to be realistic about. And I think spending a lot of time um, on YouTube or wherever you want to do your research on other countries, watching other people's videos and stories of where they've been and attending events where you can. And we're hoping to have some events this summer, uh, finding out from other people what you can do, what countries are like, and getting yourself kind of prepared and mentally. And a lot of it is mental preparation. I mean, you can say, I've got my stuff, I've got my sleeping bag, I've got my tools, I've got this, I've got that. Are you mentally prepared for dealing with other cultures? And guess what we've just been talking about is other cultures and how you deal with them. And I think all of that is stuff that we can do so that we are mentally, physically, emotionally prepared to do these trips because it's going to be a while. So let's do what we can in the meantime and help our own country's travel business 
uh, go to our own local campgrounds and hotels and whatever else and the small towns where where they were welcoming us, if they're welcoming us, because this changes from day to day, anything can happen. And I think we need to support our own countries right now and just get ready again. I think that's all we can do at the moment. And it's a lot cheaper to mail stuff home in your own country when you've overpacked. <laughs> you don't live in Canada. Well, actually, you do. You should know better than saying that. Well, that's true. Can, I can send just about anything from anywhere to anybody else in the world except from Canada. <laughs> that's true. So you buy a DVD. I ship it out of, out of the UK or USA rather than Canada. I don't know why Canada is so expensive no. for our mail. And you would expect that somebody's going to deliver it to your door at that rate, but that doesn't always happen either. Yeah, strange. I think it's, I'm, I'm told that it's something to do with trying to provide service to igloos in the northern country, northern part of the world at the same rate as to somewhere else like Vancouver, to Vancouver. That's what I'm told. Whether I believe it or not, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's outrageous. <laughs> Aren't you lot still using huskies and sleds up there? Well, of course, yes. as you, you don't have course. any more reliable than that. Better than a skidoo. Uh, yeah, they get there. You can't eat the skidoo if you get stuck. <laughs> That's Hang terrible. It. But it's true. <laughs> no good musher would eat their dogs. That's horrible. Who, who else uh, with an opinion? Well, I actually have a trip booked for Pakistan for later this year. So I'm actually hoping. It, ironically, it was booked for last year. Um, and the tour company, it's a motorcycle trip, uh, postponed it to September of this year. And they're actually saying that they think it's going to go forward. That's, there's a lot of time between now and then for things to fall apart. And, and all I can do at this point is be an optimist and hope that things come together. But at the same time, be aware that I really only want to travel if I can do so safe, safely, not just for myself, but for anyone else that I would be um, exposed to or traveling with, things like that. So I'm really staying tuned into a lot of the changing requirements, not just in my country and in Pakistan, but those countries that I would be transferring and, and transiting through on flights, uh, because those things will affect my travel plans. And those restrictions, you know, as Grant rightly said, um, they're changing all the time. And I think that countries are smartly opening up very slowly. Um, so it, it really is not guaranteed at this point that that trip's going to come together. And if it's something that I need to postpone for another year or two, that that's fine. That's exactly what I'll do and make travel plans in my own country in the meantime, just to be safe. What well, is same. the trip, Michelle? Uh, it's a motorcycle trip flying into um, Pakistan and spending two weeks uh, in the Himalayas. Oh, and actually, yeah, exactly. And you mentioned, uh, I think, the Hunza Valley, and that's on the yeah. itinerary as well. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it whenever it can safely take place. The thing is with that, you not only have to worry about you going over there and dealing with your flights and what's required of you, and I think you did mention this, but you, you also have to deal with other people around you, like whatever you're going to be exposed yep. to while you're there. So that takes a lot more research and, and thought process. Yeah, for sure. And I actually um, am working, of course, first and foremost on understanding if I have the ability to get vaccinated in the U.S. before I go. I think at a minimum that's going to be required. I know there's a lot of discussion in our country. I'm not, I'm not sure where that stands globally about the possible need to carry um, sort of a vaccination card similar to what I already carry for yellow fever. I have a card for that when I go into countries. Um, so I expect that that may be 
a requirement as I travel. And um, that's something that's kind of on my radar. And I'm also reviewing um, possible changes and needs to change travel insurance and medical evacuation and repatriation insurance if I have those for a trip overseas, especially as those things are, you know, really having to be dynamic with the situation going on right now. I would imagine that those carriers and underwriters are reviewing and and trying to figure out how they work during uh, COVID times and how those things change. So a lot of different variables in it, and I'll just have to stay tuned and see how it plays out. You're reading my notes. Yeah, <laughs> We've been having discussions with insurance companies and there's a lot of uncertainty about whether they will cover anybody at all in current yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, you mean so, for anything or for COVID? For, well, for COVID related issues. Mm. Right. Yeah. If you get COVID in some strange country, then you may find they won't cover you no matter how much you pay them. And if you get COVID, you're not going to be flying home, are you? Well, you may not, but you, you'll want medical services while you're there. No, I, I, that's what, but I'm, I'm thinking that it's not like you can figure, okay, well, if I get COVID, I'll just head home. That's not going to be the no, case because the airlines are wa- no. wanting to see a clean bill of health. That's right. right. Yep. You know, so and I'm thinking, do any good. Yes, I'm go ahead, thinking, sorry. and no, I was just going to say, I'm thinking in terms of what if I have, uh, you know, an accident on the bike, I have had that happen before. <laughs> so, um, you know, if I have something like that happen and have to come home, you know, with an ankle or, or arm injury or something during COVID times, what is that repatriation like? Um, not so not even if I have COVID, but if something non COVID happens, there's still a lot of travel uncertainty and difficulty getting flights. Um, you know, all of that that will be affected as I try to get home. Yeah, there's a lot less flights than there were for sure. Yeah. A lot of direct flights are gone. So you have to hopscotch all the way along to get to a lot of places now. It's much more difficult. Yes. I think what we're trying to say to to John and Brad is that... um, July probably isn't a good idea anymore. Well, it's gonna, not going to happen. That was one of my questions I was, yeah. like, was going to say. Was, should they scrap yeah. it? Or, or I mean, I think it's kind of obvious they should scrap it. And They yeah. need to make alternative plans, don't yeah. they? As um, yeah. Michelle and Grant have said, um, go exploring in the United States. Um, just How about this? Make a plan to stay off every single freeway. Only go on the smallest roads and go and visit American history that you would never normally see because you're normally in a hurry to get from A to B. And just go and discover this amazing country of yours by seeing the grassroots. What a fantastic way that would be to spend um, a year. And while you're doing that, just keep planning, keep watching, keep learning so that when it does open up, then you can skedaddle. And so and think how well prepared you'll be and how well organized you'll be. And you'll be carrying a lot less stuff than mm-hmm. you would <laughs> the first track around. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll get so much more out of your international trip because you'll have learned so much more before you go and you'll have practiced so much more. Um, I, I think that everything that's going on, travel will happen again, but it's it's going to be um, a slow thing coming. And when it does happen, it's going to be different. Um, overlanders expect to be constantly 
constantly adapting and we're just going to be having to adapt to a new set of um, regulations and issues. And it will be the case that um, countries that we were hoping that we were going to be able to get into suddenly as we get towards the borders, they shut up shop because all of a sudden, you know, there's a new strain, everything goes rampant, the death rates are rising or whatever else it might be. Um, or they just feel that we're coming from a country which has got real issues and they don't want us coming into their country from, from the country that we're actually traveling in from. And on the optimistic side of things, I am very impressed with how hard the USA is working with getting people vaccinated. It's really, really ramped up. And, you know, I'm reading things that are saying um, by the end of June, um, everybody in the United States could have been vaccinated. And that's absolutely incredible. And of course, when that happens, those companies that are um, producing the vaccines, they're going to have the capacity to start producing and exporting vaccines to many other countries around the world. And I, yeah, of course, I accept that a lot of those um, vaccines have to be kept um, to a particular chill temperature. And therefore, for a lot of countries, they're not relevant. But all of the rest of those countries, yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So we won't be able to go to all of the countries that we would ideally like to be able to go. Let's concentrate on what we can do. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. I, I, I take Grant's point about, um, you know, I think it'll open up very, very, very slowly as time goes on. And like Michelle, we're planning to travel through Eastern Europe and end up in the UK and all that sort of stuff um, next year if we can. But um, I have my doubts whether it'll be next year or the year after. Uh, when you're talking about the vaccine, Australia was going gangbusters and now they've taken out of the conversation any um, plan as to when um, yeah. the majority of Australians will be vaccinated because they've had to withdraw one from certain age groups. Um, they're not getting uh, – Europe is not exporting guaranteed uh, previously guaranteed quantities it's uh, it's an ever-changing world and um, for us we went to Queensland a couple of weeks ago and had to come home uh, the much quicker way because there were problems between Victoria and Queensland and we would have been in isolation for two weeks but, in our home but this is how seriously they take it here like we're a country of say 26 27 million people. We've travelled to Brisbane. We've been to that fantastic um, GOMA exhibition of, of uh, motorcycles from the Guggenheim Museum, and uh, we're elsewhere. And someone, one person in Brisbane, was identified with the UK strain of COVID. So they closed down the the central area of Brisbane, and they uh, limited that spread to I think three or four people. But every person that had been in that area. Um, had to um, go and get COVID tested. Um, because we'd been in that area for two days uh, and pr not anywhere near where the um, um, the outbreak was seen or was experienced, we had to um, get a permit to travel back to our, our own uh, state. Uh, we had to have a COVID test. We had to self-isolate for 30 hours in our own home until we got results. So, um, and that was one outbreak. Can We've I... had one death uh, of COVID related, which was yesterday in months. Oh, nearly, nearly a year, nearly a year. Can but I just tell down. you a, a funny um, story with that um, outbreak in Queensland? Uh, the second or third person to get COVID was um, a tradie 
as a tradesman slash entertainer. And he had been to a hen's night in um, a a beachside (laughs) city in New South Wales, Byron Bay, and two of the girls who were at the hen's night got COVID from the tradie slash entertainer. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say I I have a feeling that his... um, his cabaret outfit didn't take up much space in his tradies car as he was driving to Byron Bay. So when he travels, he's not shipping luggage back. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. There's a guy who knows the how to travel. The part of his, exactly. his spray tan. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's, that's how seriously we take it here. And because of that, We've been able to open up what we're calling a travel bubble between Australia and New Zealand. So if I wanted to, I could ship my motorcycle to New Zealand and travel New Zealand right now. Um, so we are opening up slowly. They're taking planes that have been, in, um, you know, they, they're, they're storing planes in desert areas to keep them okay. They're starting to um, uh, recommission those planes back into action. So I think travel will open up. There's a couple of things that I reckon... We will have, and I agree with um, what Michelle said about you're going to have to have a basically a medical passport to say you've had the COVID vaccinations. So any vaxxers, you're not travelling anywhere. Um, the um, it's pretty easy nowadays to check out where the hotspots are. So I think even in years to come, there might be outbreaks somewhere where we'll have to avoid certain areas. You'll have to carry masks and disposable gloves. I think which is just a given. Uh, a report on the radio just before we came uh, to do this podcast was um, they've done studies that uh, between 40 and 46 percent um, uh, effectiveness of um, just wearing a mask that reduces your um, um, ability to get the virus by 40 to 46 percent, which is pretty bloody good, really. Mm. Uh, sanitizer, well, we carry sanitizer with us anyway on the bike, you know. Um, you'll be having something like that. Um, and really, hygiene is going to be essential to stop the spread of uh, COVID. For long-term planning, though, you mentioned there might be hotspots and things like that. For long-term planning, it, it'll be very difficult yeah. to do and, and deal with that. You know, Because oh, hotspots pop up so fast, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's true. But, you know, with the internet and stuff like that nowadays, it's pretty easy to find out what's happening um, in the next state um, overnight. Yeah. I heard about this travel bubble that you guys were getting set up between Australia and New Zealand. And don't you guys think that that's where we're going to go first? Don't you think that's going to be the first step? That's that's sort of what I imagine is that countries are going to sort of team up with other countries and, and sort of set yeah. up a travel bubble saying we're close together, you know, proximity wise, yeah. and we think the same way. And, you know, I think though that almost seems to me what's going to happen first is bubbles will form and then the bubbles may connect. You know, that's yeah. how I sort of see it opening. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, Jim. And I really think if you travel, you've got to be prepared to go into isolation when you come. Well, you will be in Australia for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, people will be requested to go into self-isolation in their home or if they're being cantankerous, they'll be uh, put into a hotel and you're going to stay there. You're not getting out until you've had these tests. That's what we've been doing and it's proved pretty successful to date. Sam? And, you know, travel, travel insurance is another issue, which I think you've all discussed. And um, as I said, I, th- I reckon Michelle was reading my notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of other points. Um, right now, 
motorcycle sales and motorcycle spare part sales have gone through the roof. Yeah, uh, I've got yeah, mates everywhere. in the industry who can't who can't get bikes to sell. There's people queuing up to buy um, new bikes, and they're having to wait three, four, five, six months. Supply chains are very um, broken because factories have had to shut down and all that sort of stuff. Um, so people are planning and doing things and spending money getting themselves ready to go. Well, well, some of that's from that, but some of it's also from, like as you said, supply chains. So you've got factories yep. that have been shut down, not manufacturing, different parts yep. of the supply chain fall apart. So you've got, yes, you've got a bunch of people buying products because a lot of people are sitting at home or have been at different times sitting at home and doing things. But other other t- things are, are the manufacturing has just dropped off. It's, it's driving prices up. And before we started the show, we talked about the price of lumber. So there's a lot of yeah. things. It's uh, it's crazy, and and that brings me to wondering what that's gonna, what effect that's gonna have on travel. I mean, we're just talking bike parts here now, but uh, is that gonna increase the cost of travel? Uh, yeah, it could for a bit, but you could be like me and just buy another motorbike, like I've just done. <laughs> you bought another bike. <laughs> Brian, Sorry. How many bikes do you have now? He just slips that into the yeah. conversation. Well, and Shirley <laughs> probably just heard about it too. I just, I just thought I'd let that in, in, in amongst company so I can... He's a lot safer telling me while I'm sitting here with an open mic. <laughs> and he sounds like he got farther away. His, his voice sort of trailed off there like he's moving away from the mic. We'll talk about it later, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> I'll never get space up in that big shed in the backyard for something I want to do. If you keep buying more motorbikes, just get another shed, Shirley. <laughs> it's I yours. Yeah, so I have to get my own shed. Thanks, Grant. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm right behind you on that. <laughs> you know, one of the things that makes me feel fairly positive about the way things are going is what's been happening in the UK. The last time we talked about this, the infection rates were absolutely stupid high, um, just incredibly dense, and the death rate um, was miserable too. Um, but we've been locked down um, for the last um, couple of months, and the vaccine's been rolled out with great enthusiasm, and the rates have absolutely plummeted. And I think that when vaccine becomes available and when people start all paying real attention to this, um, then it, it can be brought under control enough for us to travel. We will never get rid of COVID. It will always be there for us, um, but we're just going to have to adapt. And it's still going to be fun out there. But quite often in the past, you know, we've talked about the value of handshakes and that sort of stuff um, and the value of a smile when you're traveling. Um, and it's always been one of my favorite things to talk about. But I think the border crossings and that sort of thing are now probably almost certainly going to be done wearing face masks masks and we'll lose the value of the smile and the handshake. But doesn't anybody else here think that eyes can be incredibly sexy? I'm going to be concentrating on watching eyes. Eyes look great when they're smiling. I wasn't going to say sexy. I was going to say they tell a lot. And you can the tell. Sexy part, but the rest of it, yes. Yeah, they tell a lot, don't they? I mean, you, you can see when yes. somebody smiles. And we're learning subtleties, I guess, you know, to, to look at the eyes and see, oh, they're smiling. That's what's happening behind the mask. But you can also Absolutely. print a smile on your mask, Sam. Saves you all the work. Oh, don't, 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 don't. They look really terrible. Oh, no, they're scary. This <laughs> <laughs> is a guy who has a beard just, that he got a, oh. a mask done with a, a replica of his beard and him at, with this um, neat little grin on his face. And oh, I just thought, good. yeah, that's that's pretty darn good yeah, until I realised he paid £57 to have it done. I thought, that's not, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's not 
And it was a disposable mask, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he did it just for fun, but I like I appreciated him for doing that yeah. just because yeah, people are finding some fun in amidst this. There's been some 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 cracking stuff happening. Um, I think overlanders, anybody who's got an overlander mentality is ready to be flexible, ready to learn, ready to adapt and ready to find the silver linings and we'll find them and it'll happen. Yeah. Anyone else thoughts about uh, the future of travel? I know one thing that we've noticed, uh, we just opened up uh, registration or started announcing that registration was open for France and the registrations have been flooding in at an incredible rate. So people are clearly anxious to do something, anything, go to motorcycle events, meet their friends and get out there and travel. So I think as soon as it's possible, there's going to be an explosion. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. The Adventure Bike Rider Festival in the UK was going to have a cap of 5,000 people. And I think they've sold well over 6,000 tickets now. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. And yeah, it's it's just going to absolutely hum. If it can go ahead. There's, there's no date. We're yeah. like, well, I know we're already learning new ways of dealing with things, but I, I think the the um, events thing happening more outside is probably something we're going to see more of, more events being planned that way. Because there's even variants around now. I mean, we just heard uh, the day before yesterday, I think it was, that there's a, an African variant, I think they're calling it, that um, doesn't seem to uh, respond to uh, any of the vaccines, any of the vaccines. So there's another right. wild one out there. And these things tend to mutate fairly fast. So I think we all agree we're going to be dealing with this for a while, but we may find new ways to deal with things, even if it's within our bubbles, you know, and then go back to some of the of what we've been missing out on, like these events. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think um, time-wise we should wrap things up and get into our plugs and then let Sam head off to bed. So first, I'm, I'm going to get Sam while he's still awake. And he sounds very awake. Doesn't he sound awake? It's the whiskey. Um, yeah, no, I'm doing absolutely fine. I, and I'm only one glass of whiskey down now. I've still got two Good for you. Siesta's rock. Um, and it's it's very good. You know, there's something very naughty schoolboyish about bunking off work to go and have a siesta. <laughs> you mean you did that because you're you're staying up late? Yep. Oh, absolutely. No, I wouldn't be able to do this at, at 10 o'clock at night um, without a siesta, but that's fine. Siestas are cool. I enjoy that. Um, my plug. Well, actually, this isn't so much of, of a plug as an encouragement post. Um, I'm very much aware that over the past months of travel restrictions, many people have been taking on um, on board the everybody has a book in them theory. And I just like to say, good on you. I'm seeing quite a few manuscripts and comments from people who are writing, and I think it's fantastic. And just watching the tail wagging adventure that people are having by doing this. And some people have been writing to me and saying how daunted they've been by just the concept of writing a book. But once they've got into it and they've been reliving adventures and telling the stories and all of that sort of stuff, they've been having an absolute ball. And anybody who's still thinking about doing one, go for it. Take your time, paint those word pictures, and of course, get yourself a great editor. Because I think the more good adventure motorcycle travel books there are out there, the better. Um, Yeah, go on, share the fun with us, the knowledge and the challenges and the road, and um, give us a chance to learn from your experiences. Um, So yeah, more motorcycle travel books, please. But um, yeah, doing well, take your time, get a good editor. Probably no time in history has been more ripe for travel stories than now. 
because, it's great. Yeah, because people, people can't get out. Found got time. And, and you yeah. and you want to you want to explore, right? So I mean, why not read somebody's adventure that they've just done and and plan yours for some you know couple of years down the road? Yeah, no, too right. No, that's a good point, Sam. Michelle, what do you have? Well, I am part of Rev Sisters, which is a women-owned motorcycle event company, and we started a series of motorcycle film festivals last year, and they are held online, and they are free the first weekend um, of the event. So we have our next upcoming event is the Santa Cruz Motorcycle Film Festival. It starts on May 14th, and for May 14th through the 16th, you can on you can view those films that are selected for the festival online for free from the comfort of your own home um, and they're not scheduled to play you can watch them at your leisure so people that are in different time zones don't have to worry about a conflict there and you can find free tickets available at revsisters.com all right and we'll put that link in the show notes too. send us that link so we'll we'll post that when the show Jim, can i just make a comment on this yeah because i've i've watched the films from the last three of the rev um, sisters film festivals and they have been absolutely incredible every film has been completely different to the next and they've covered the complete range of motorcycling everything from scrambling to to dirt track to to touring to adventure riding to and just yeah awesome this and some of them are you know shorts 10 minutes long and some of them are you know full feature length film um so yeah um absolutely do not miss this opportunity they're fantastic thank you sam you're no. hired. <laughs> Check it in the mail. Right. <laughs> Brian, what have you got? I've got a couple of things. First of all, uh, we're, we're in right into the planning of our wall to wall ride, which goes to Canberra from all over Australia. Um, we're obviously depending on COVID and all the rest of it, but we've got um, QR codes and we, we, we're confident that we can pull off an event this year. Um, we were expecting, oh, last time we ran the event from Victoria, we escorted 430 riders over two days to Canberra, um, but and we were expecting about 2,000 people to attend. This ride is on Saturday, September 18 this year in Canberra. Um, the Victorian ride that I'll be involved in will leave on Friday the 17th from our memorial in um um, Melbourne itself. What? Uh, September. So I'll I'll send you the link. But the registrations are now open. Yamaha have kindly given us another motorcycle, an MTO nine, to raffle off um, to raise funds and money for um, uh, legatee. So um, everything's all go for that. And just just on a sad note. Um, lost a colleague yesterday and I really wanted to pay tribute to a fellow by the name of Ron Fenton was a police officer here in Victoria. Um, there was, this is going back about 20, 30 years now. He was um, on patrol. Uh, a bloke had killed another fellow and um, uh, this this man was, a, he snipered uh, Ron who was driving a car, shot him in the head um, he survived that somehow with 27 bullet fragments in his head. He then um, uh, fought his way back to be able to be an operational police officer again. He um, suffered badly from post-traumatic stress syndrome, as you can imagine. He um, had a bad motorcycle accident 
He um, survived all that. He uh, then uh, was one of the first people to be issued with a companion dog, which is a, a dog trained by a prisoner in New South Wales, and they train them to look after people who have, you know, like the night sweats and wake up and all that sort of stuff. Well, Ron's dog, Yogi, was with him for a long, long time. Um, Ron fought for the rights of um, uh, companion dogs to be um, supported by um, insurance agencies for food and medical assistance and all that sort of stuff, had those legislations passed. And uh, uh, Ron yesterday succumbed to cancer and passed away, but he did a hell of a lot in his life. And um, to my mate, Ron, well done, mate. Well, life well lived. Respect. Wow. wow. Yeah. That, here, here. Um, sorry for the loss, but uh, it sounds like um, he really made the best of things. Well, well, that's right. And he changed a lot of things in life, you know. He, 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 you know, he, he fought and battled and scratched after being shot in the head. And you can imagine what that's like. They didn't think he'd survive that. And um, he went on to live a very full and um, uh, great life. And um, he actually had a living wake um, uh, about a month ago. And um, he was well recognised by all his mates and friends there, which was just fantastic. Oh, what a great living wake! I've never heard of that before. Yeah, what a fantastic I idea! Great. I think it's a great yeah, way to do it. Yep, yep, yeah. And the boys um, got him. Uh, he wanted to um, skydive one last time, so they they uh, strapped him to some bloke, and he jumped out of a plane less than two weeks ago. Wow. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. I tell you what, that's I'm a real nice. fan of. I'm, I'm a real fan of of wakes, and I really like the idea of celebrating somebody's life and not feeling miserable because they're no longer there anymore. People do some really special stuff in their lives, don't they? But I tell you what, your mate sounds a real gem. And to have a wake where you can actually be there and hear them yeah, say yeah. the nice things about <laughs> you, <laughs> even better. Yep. It does what seem more useful, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, so please excuse me for that little indulgence, but I thought it was important because that's how you live your life. Live it to the full. Get out there and do your thing. Yeah. Yep. Thank, thank you for sharing it with us. Too right. Exactly. Yeah. Shirley, what do you have? Well, Jim, mine's a personal plug. Uh, for those people in Victoria who are still going to be riding while we head into winter, one of the great places to go is the Great Ocean Road. Anyone who's been here will have ridden down the Great Ocean Road. Our son's just opened a new restaurant. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right on the it's right on the waterfront in Apollo Bay and it's called Birdhouse. Good. And um, he's, uh, he's a rider himself, so if he's not there and it's a good day, you'll probably find he's out on the Great Ocean Road. Take, he's taken the day off out of the kitchen. But, um, yeah, so if you're down Apollo Bay enjoying the Great Ocean Road in the last of our good weather, um, Birdhouse. He has another restaurant, doesn't he? Uh, he's sold that one. He's sold oh. Castellingo and he's moved to the one on the beachfront um, Birdhouse. We went down there on uh, Good Friday and had lunch and it was lovely. It was a beautiful day and it's got wall-to-wall windows at the front, which all the windows upstairs, were opened up so. and it's upstairs. So you're away from the traffic and overlooking the water and it's oh. uh, Mediterranean food, uh, seafood, and he has perfected the asado for those who've eaten. Oh. Wow. I want to be there now. Ever. Yeah, but yes. that's his mum talking. I mean, like, you know, you, you, can, <laughs> you can only give so much to that review. <laughs> I'm only marginally biased. <laughs> Birdhouse. Well, that's very cool. That's pretty exciting. And then, of course, you guys get free food, right? 
Um, oh, well, well, funnily enough, we walked out without paying oh, last time. Ami's first walkout. The first dine and dash was for my parents. That's great. That should go on the wall. <laughs> Grant, what have you got? Well, I've got some exciting events. Lots coming up, but um, nothing until July. So it's mm. going to be a while. We're putting off as much as we can to try and have events available late in the year. So a lot of events have had dates changed. If you're used to going to an event on a particular date, please check the horizonsunlimited.com slash events page to make sure that the date is still the same. And that doesn't mean it won't change again. All dates are subject to change. But uh, we have Hum Cascades, Can West. We've got an event in Sweden. We're looking at opening up Newfoundland. Romania in, in August, Germany, France. Like I said earlier, we opened up France and holy cow, there's all kinds of people signing up. We're getting 10 or 15, 20 a day. It's amazing. We're going to fill up pretty soon. So California, Virginia, and South Africa. So still lots of events. Um, maybe a few more. We'll see. But uh, we're looking very positive towards towards the end of the year when most people have been vaccinated we will be able to have some events and get together and have a good time together and tell stories and do a little planning for the future when the world is a better place. What dates uh, have you got for um, the California and Virginia ones? Because I've been to both of those a couple of times and I've really enjoyed. Yeah, they're both great. California, September 23 to 26, and Virginia, September 30 to October 3. Nice. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I wish I could get to all of them myself. <laughs> There's just no way. But for local people, if it's in your area, now's the chance to get in there and meet some other travelers and do a little planning and getting a, get a little inspiration and connect with people that you haven't met before. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to one, the ones I can go to, which will be the ones here in British Columbia. Okay. okay. Talk to you all later. See you next month, everybody. Thanks, Grant. Yeah. Take care. Cheers, everybody. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a motor traveler that also has a couple of great motor travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in latin america both of those titles available on amazon as well she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the chalet motel you can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com and of course grant johnson is from horizons unlimited which is the hub literally for our adventure motorcycling community horizons unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers they also put on the hub meets around the world you can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website horizonsunlimited.com special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin my name is jim martin thank you for listening join us again next time oh and don't forget if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here drop by our website you can also look at the show notes i have some more information in here you can make comments on the show notes adventureriderradio.com 